Welcome to the Humble Perspectives Podcast with Steve Humble. In this episode, I will be reading chapter 16 from my book, For Such a Time as This, One Man's Spiritual Journey. Our time in the Servants of the Lord community was not only a good way to live, but I also had opportunities to get acquainted with people in other communities and to participate in some meaningful events, which I would have not had otherwise. I remain deeply grateful for that part of the journey. At the same time, in the early 1980s, unexpected and unpleasant realities outside of my control began to show up. Although there was much good over the next several years, there were also the challenges that reveal weaknesses in my character, weaknesses that I needed to see in order that I could know God's love, mercy, and grace in a deeper way. And now, chapter 16, New Opportunities. The division in our local community was in large part the result of conflict among a circle of leaders outside our community. That conflict took me totally by surprise. I was surprised because there were things I simply did not know and had not been discerning enough to pick up on. But I was also surprised because I was idealistic and naive not giving enough weight to human weakness and fallibility. Not only did the leaders whom we looked up to have weaknesses, but there were weaknesses in our own community that I had not perceived. I became aware of these weaknesses gradually over the next year as the divisions began to surface. The Servants of the Lord community belonged to an association of communities, an international network of ecumenical, i.e. interdenominational communities, that had developed from the charismatic renewal in the Catholic Church. Leaders from these communities had joined themselves together seeking to develop a common identity among themselves and to share their wisdom and resources with one another as they worked together to build more stable communities, to become more effective in evangelism, and to develop new communities. Desiring to be a prophetic witness to what the church should be, They had sought to organize in a way that would give them more visibility and strength as they strove to build working relationships with the various churches and denominations to which their members belonged. It had taken a few years for the primary leaders of the communities to agree on the structure of the relationships between the groups and on how they would define and govern their relationship and common work. One proposal had been to organize tightly into a federation of communities. However, they had eventually settled for a somewhat looser relationship, an association of communities. By 1977, the primary influencers within the association came from two communities, Steve Clark and Ralph Martin from the Word of God community in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and Kevin Ranahan and Paul DeSales from the People Praise in South Bend, Indiana. In addition, Steve, Ralph, and Kevin were also members of a group known as the Ecumenical Council. Other members of that council were Lutherans, Larry Christensen and Don Fotenauer, and the five New Wine teachers who had widely, who had widely diverse backgrounds. These men had joined together in a covenant relationship, agreeing to stand together and support one another as they worked within their own spheres of responsibility. Along with the other coordinators, 
from our community, in August 1980, I joined with coordinators from all the other association communities around the world for a conference that was held at the Franciscan University of Steubenville in Ohio. Following that conference, I was invited with several, do with several dozen others to stay on in the Steubenville area for three weeks of special training and working together that would be held at a nearby retreat center. There were two main themes in the presentations made during these gatherings. Both themes were developed at least partly in response to a number of prophetic words that have been given in recent years concerning hard times that the people of God in the world would be facing. One of the most significant of these words had been given at a huge Catholic charismatic gathering in Rome in May 1975 and had been published in New Covenant, the magazine that served the Catholic charismatic renewal. That word, given by Ralph Martin, had included a word, warning that structures in which God's people had trusted would be shaken, an image suggestive of Hebrews 12, 25-29. At the Steubenville meetings, the brothers from the Word of God community in Ann Arbor gave presentations on the theme, Stemming the Tide of Evil in the World. Their thrust was that the church and the world were in the midst of a major crisis in our generation, and that it was highly likely that we had entered a time of judgment. They believed that God had raised up covenant communities like ours as a bulwark of truth to hold back the encroachment of evil. In one memorable presentation, Steve Clark talked about the times and ways in which the Bible calls us to fight evil, at times to fight even with physical force, he maintained. The brothers from the People Praise community in South Bend talked about the theme being a provident and resourceful people. Drawing much from the biblical wisdom literature, these brothers called us to develop a way of life that included practical preparation for natural disasters, such as storms and earthquakes, as well as preparation for economic crises and other crises. Their point of view was that from time to time difficulties do come in a fallen world and that wisdom calls upon us to set aside resources to deal with such times. In addition, they called us to develop lifestyles in our communities that released resources, both human and material, to advance the cause of God and the earth. Both themes were biblically developed and made good sense. I did not recognize that these two themes also represented disagreement between the leaders of the two communities as to how to interpret and respond to the prophecies. A disagreement rooted in certain theological and philosophical differences. I was naive. I assumed we were just being given a fuller picture with these two emphases. In a few months, my assumption would prove to be false. But in the time before that, I had opportunities to serve because of our connection with the Association of Communities. Three specific things from that time in Steubenville were of special importance in my personal journey. First, one evening during that three weeks, I had a private conversation with Ralph Martin. Let me cl say clearly at the outset, Ralph Martin was and is a man of God whom I respect. The Lord has used him powerfully as a prophetic evangelist. That being said, I did have to talk with him about a matter that had deeply troubled me. 
Ralph had come to Minneapolis in the spring of 1980 in order to videotape a series of lectures called A Crisis of Truth, which were to be broadcast later on a Catholic television network. In 1982, Ralph published a book with that same title. The members of the servants had been asked to attend both for personal benefit and also in order to provide an audience for Ralph's presentation. Ralph specifically addressed timely and important issues concerning the battle for truth in contemporary culture. His lectures were filled with documented evidence of the attack on the faith and teaching and morality of the church. This battle was then and is now a reality facing the whole Christian church. Ralph spoke, spoke specifically to Roman Catholics, even though there were a number of us Protestants from the servants who were in the audience. Because I was coordinator in the community, Patricia and I were seated near the front of the room. I wholeheartedly agreed with Ralph with what Ralph was seeking to accomplish in the lectures. The material he had gathered in his presentation were powerful. Even so, I more than bristled at one of his key foundational points during the first lecture. Ralph repeatedly declared that there were matters on which Catholics could be sure that they knew the truth, absolute truth without error. Now, I agreed that there is absolute truth we can know. However, again and again, Ralph stated that the absolute truth was to be found in the agreement between Scripture, the writings of the Church Fathers, and the official teaching of the Pope and Magisterium of the Church, that is, the Pope and the Council of Bishops. The more I thought about this statement, the more I was bothered. Here was one of the primary leaders in our network of ecumenic ecumenical communities proclaiming the absolute truth was to be found in the scriptures plus. Yes, I recognize that Ralph's words were consistent with Roman Catholic doctrine. However, I also believe that by emphasizing this definition of absolute truth, Ralph was in effect shutting the door to meaningful dialogue between Catholics and Protestants over one of the main points at issue in the Reformation, that of sola scriptura the teaching that Scripture alone is the foundation for all truth. I wondered, how are we to move toward unity in doctrine if one group already has the absolute truth? While Ralph was teaching, I had become so agitated that every time I saw a camera pointing in my direction, I slid down in my seat in hopes that I would not be seen and recognized by anyone when the lecture was broadcast on TV. What if someone sees me and thinks I agree with that? I fumed. As soon as there was a break in the meeting, I hunted up Larry Alberts and began to spew out my concern and frustration. Larry was taken back by my vehemence. Thankfully, he did manage to remind me of the deliverance that God had given me. Lay down your sword and shield toward the body of Christ. God had said. During the next session, with the help of the Lord, I managed to get control of my emotions and to settle down. My strong emotional reaction was a clear indication that Ralph's words had touched some insecurity in me that would block fruitful conversation. Later that evening, at a reception, Larry had brought Ralph to me and invited him to express me to express my concerns to him. However, I was thinking more clearly by then, and I realized that Ralph was addressing such a necessary topic that it would be wrong for me to stir up confusion or dissension 
when he still had several lectures to give the next day. We decided to wait until a better opportunity. That opportunity came during the time in Steubenville when Ralph and I had the chance to sit down together in a library at the monastery where we were staying. I told Ralph my concern about the way he had defined absolute truth. He seemed perplexed by my concern. He told me that prior to the taping sessions in Minneapolis, he had given the presentation at an ecumenical gathering of charismatic leaders and that it had been well received. I ask, you told the ecumenical leaders that the absolute truth is found when scripture, the writing of the fathers, and the teaching of the magisterium agree? Ralph replied, I did not mean to imply that this definition applied to truth for Protestants. I was talking about absolute truth for Catholics. Ralph, I responded, absolute truth has to be absolute. There cannot be absolute truth for Catholics that is different from absolute truth for Protestants. I went on to share my opinion that if Roman Catholics insisted on that definition up front, then I could not see how there was a possibility of dialogue toward unity unless we Protestants surrendered our view from the beginning. I saw that my words struck a chord with Ralph, even though there was not much more to say. We left that room as friends, but we could not resolve the problem because Ralph is a faithful Catholic and the definition he used is Catholic teaching, insofar as I understand it. I think he might have been so familiar with the Catholic definition that he had not full, fully considered some of its implications. It was not that Ralph was ignorant at all, but on that point he seemed not to have been conscious that the assumption he had accepted from his Catholic formation might be a major stumbling block to unity. To tell the truth, I think we all have unidentified assumptions that are problematic hindering conversation and making unity difficult. Certainly, my wife and I run into some of our own ways of thinking through the years. Thankfully, not every unconscious assumption has such huge ramifications as that one. I do not know whether Ralph has ever thought about the conversation again, but by 1983 I'd come to see this matter of identifying the authoritative grounds for truth as an important issue in my, for my own life. The second important thing for me in those three weeks of training was the time spent brainstorming in small groups. I was assigned to a group led by Peter Williamson, a member of the Word of God community and one of the editors of Pastoral Renewal, an ecumenical magazine for leaders of churches, communities, and prayer groups. Our group was assigned to identify some strategies that our communities could implement in an effort to stem the tide of evil in the churches. We recognize that the most important challenges facing the church in the latter part of the 20th century were essentially the same for everyone who took the Bible seriously as God's revealed word, be they Pentecostals, Charismatics, Evangelicals, Catholics, or Orthodox. In our discussion, we sought wisdom about specific approaches to communicate better with each group. During several sessions, we tried to come up with ideas to awaken God's people in order to prepare them for battle. One of the ideas our group discussed was to search out influential leaders from the various streams of the Christian church, leaders whom we had reason to believe were faithful to God, to the church, and to the truth. We discussed a number of ways to help these leaders meet one another and to become more aware of our common battle. 
we wanted to find ways to encourage them to network together so that they could mutually encourage and help one another serve the Lord's purposes in the churches. Sitting on the lawn talking together on those hot August summer afternoons, I had no idea that I was participating in a conversation that was to have lasting ramifications in the church, but that comes later. The third thing was that during these three weeks, I was asked to accompany Mark Kinzer from the Word of God in Ann Arbor on a trip to Emmanuel Covenant Community in Brisbane, Australia, later that fall. We were invited there to help settle a problem between non-denominational and Catholic members of the community. Shortly after returning home from the Steubenville meetings, I began preparations for the trip to Australia. The most urgent task was to apply for a passport since I'd never tri traveled outside the United States except for a few day trips to Nuevo Laredo, Mexico and to Winnipeg, Canada. While I was in the process of getting the passport, Jack Brombeck informed me that the head coordinators wanted fellow coordinator John Burry and me to participate in a theological colloquy in Ann Arbor, Michigan in early October. I was not sure what a theological colloquy was. However, since my leaders had asked me to go, I never considered not doing so. I assumed that I was going because of my interest in theology. I did wonder why John, a psychology professor at St. Thomas College, was asked to go, but it turned out that psychology was one of the topics that was taken up at the colloquy. As it turned out, Mark Kinzer was to present a paper at the colloquy, therefore we made plans to leave together for Australia from Michigan immediately afterward. Although the timing was close, my passport arrived soon enough and I began to pack for the long trip. As the time to leave drew nearer, Patricia began to be more concerned about me going so far away. That made it somewhat hard to leave. But the fact that I would be gone on her birthday made it even worse because birthdays had become important celebrations in our family. We celebrated the birthday in a small way before I left. However, I secretly gave money to one of Patricia's friends and asked her to host a surprise birthday party for Patricia on the actual day, Friday, October 10th. On the 7th of October, John and I flew together to Ann Arbor. That evening, we attended the first session of the colloquy the theme of which was Christianity Confronts Modernity. To my surprise, I began to learn who the participants were. The gathering seemed like a fulfillment of some of the ideas about which we had brainstormed in our small group at Steubenville. There were probably 75 to 100 men and women there, among them evangelical, Pentecostal, and Catholic theologians, pastors, priests, deacons, leaders of Christian communities, editors, psychologists, psychiatrists, professors, and students. The next two days centered on the formal presentation of six papers, each presentation followed by two prepared responses. Following each paper and the responses, the three who presented them formed a panel and led a discussion of each topic, a discussion open to all the participants in the colloquy. In addition to these formal sessions, time had been built into the schedule for relationship building around meals and free times. Before I read on, I had to take a pause there to try to get my throat cleared out from having some issues with allergies still and needing to work on that. So before I go on and read, let me just mention 
I'm going to talk about some of the papers and some of the content in them that for some of my readers may seem irrelevant or kind of heady or something like that. But I included them in the book for a very good reason, because the issues we were talking about there in 1980, uh, many of them are even more pertinent and more the battles lines are more clearly drawn now culturally than they were back then. And uh, so for those who are leaders or those who young people who are potential leaders, hopefully there'll be some thoughts in here that uh, you will want to pursue uh, if they're new to you. Okay, I return to the reading. I recognized a few of the names on the participants' names tags. The list of presenters included several more whose names I recognized. Also, I knew of two of the editors, Kenneth Kantzner of Christianity Today and Stephen Board of Eternity Magazine. I also knew the well-known English author J.I. Packer, an Anglican priest and also professor of history and theology at Regents College in British Columbia. In addition to several esteemed evangelicals, the list of responders included several Catholic theologians, a Catholic priest, and a Catholic deacon who was also a theology professor. Several of my friends from the Word of God community and the People Praise community were scheduled to present papers or responses. Also participating in the conference were well-known pastors and authors such as Charles Simpson, Larry Christensen, Robert Gerard, and Howard Snyder all of whom who had made significant contributions to my life through their teachings, whether on cassette tapes or in books. That left my big question unanswered. Why was I there among these scholars and leaders? I felt privileged, of course, to be around them, and certainly the topics to be discussed looked interesting, but I also felt out of my league. The colloquy's theme was significant for several reasons. One, it recognized that in our world there was a battle taking place between modernity, which refers to ideas, attitudes, and practices that have developed out of the Enlightenment a few centuries ago, between modernity and Christianity. It recognized, number two, by implication that modernity presently had the upper hand in contemporary Western culture. And number three, it suggested, again by implication, that Christianity might ought to be on the offense confronting modernity, not simply on defense or in retreat. The range of topics discussed at the colloquy is indicated by the titles of the main papers. Christian Identity and Social Change in the Technological Society by Mark Kinzer, Ideology versus Theology, Case Studies of Liberation Theology and the Christian New Right by psychologist Dale Vree, The Course of Radical Change in the Churches by James Hitchcock, From a Secular to a Christian Psychology by Paul C. Vitz, Modern Approaches to Scriptural Authority by Stephen B. Clark, and The Challenge Facing the Churches by Donald G. Blesch. Let me make a correction. Dale Vree is not a psychologist. He uh, is an author and was an editor of a significant paper. Significantly, this colloquy took place in the same time period that 
the so-called Christian New Right had arisen politically. About one month before a conservative, Ronald Reagan, would be elected president. In the years immediately preceding our gathering, a growing number of evangelicals had begun to awaken to the cultural issues, to Christian responsibility, and to the weakened condition of the church. The awakening was welcome. However, in some cases, shallow theology and a lack of spiritual and intellectual preparation were not providing a sufficient base for fruitful strategies and actions that would endure. The majority of those identified as the Christian right appeared to be mostly interested in specific issues and seemed to think that they could change these issues by winning the seats of power. While the colloquy touched on some of the same issues that had given rise to the new right, the primary intent of this gathering was to expose the root problems, areas in which much of the church had been succumbing to modernism. Secondarily, these discussions pointed to the need to develop strategies for dealing with cultural issues that were theologically sound in the light of historic Christian faith and practice. In addition, the men and women participating in the colloquy had the opportunity to discover common concerns and to begin to establish relationships from which they could encourage one another, bring balance to one another's ideas, and hopefully even work together to develop and implement, implement such sound strategies. I have written about the way in which I had been influenced in the late 1960s and early 1970s by political and economic liberal ideas about social justice issues, such as civil rights and war. Later I began to see that some of these political ideas, which at a surface level appeared similar to biblical teaching, were at a root level incompatible and sometimes antithetical to biblical thought. On the other hand, I had not been able to buy fully into political and economic conservatism either. I had come to the realization that the way of God's kingdom was neither liberal nor conservative in terms of its implications for politics and economics. Yet I still was looking mostly at issues rather than at roots. Dale Vries' paper, Ideology versus Theology, Case Studies of Liberation Theology and the Christian New Right, most directly addressed such issues. In Vries' view, the Marxist assumptions that underlay liberation theology, a growing ideology at that time, were explicit and were wrong. While the concern for moral absolutes that motivated many of the new right were clear and most often right. In my opinion, then and now, Rhee was much more in touch with contemporary Roman Catholic theological perspectives than he was with biblical thought on issues such as war. He rightly identified some of the problems stemming from dispensational premillennialism, which he called apocalyptic premillennialism. The most common eschatology held by evangelicals. However, I thought he did not understand Protestant thinking very well. Even so, Bree's paper caused me to ask questions that needed to be asked about my own assumptions. The responses by Reformed theologians I. John Hasselink and Kevin Perota, a member of the Word of God community and also one of the editors of Pastoral Renewal, stimulated me to look more deeply at the theological foundations for political involvement. Parada's paper, in particular, clearly presented the need to apply distinctively Christian criteria to political ideologies. I was struck by Kevin's insight into the confusion that arises 
when it comes to considering the relationship between Christianity and politics in contemporary Western society. He said, quote, Christian thinking of the past does not answer our questions about what is right Christian response to the disorder and inequities of the global technological society which have risen in the past couple hundred years. Thus, Christians are particularly open to the political ideologies which have arisen in the modern period in order to answer these questions. Christianity entered the modern period unprepared to deal with the systemic poverty generated by capitalism, for example, or with the complex processes of social decay in advanced technological societies. But ideologies such as Marxism and political conservatism offer diagnoses and cures. This accounts for some of the allure of the political ideologies. They analyze problems that Christians are deeply concerned about, and they offer solutions designed to fit contemporary circumstances. But what accounts for the confusion of these ideologies with the Christian message? How do they come to be seen as Christian approaches? The answer lies in the fact that these ideologies have learned from Christianity. Those on the left have derived a concern for the poor, a desire to see all members of society treated charitably. Those on the right, a commitment to the integrity of the family and sexual, Im- and sexual morality. These attitudes seem to be Christian ones. In many cases, their source is the Judeo-Christian heritage of Western civilization. Thus, Christians are faced with ideologies which, having adopted elements of Christian social thinking, are harder to distinguish from Christian positions than they would be if they plainly rejected goals that Christians cherish. Unquote. This succinct statement summed up some of the conflict in my own thinking at the time. I was conservative when it came to morality and family issues. I also recognized that the liberals were correct in being concerned for the issues of social justice such as racism, poverty, and war. The Bible addresses all these issues, so how can we choose one set and ignore the others? Over the following years, as my understanding of biblical jurisdiction has grown, I have concluded that we must ask which jurisdictions or jurisdiction has God made responsible to deal with whatever the issue is that is under consideration. Then, having identified the proper jurisdiction, we can seek out how problems can be handled within the context of that jurisdiction. In other words, since God has made individuals responsible to govern themselves in certain matters, then God's people must disciple individuals to handle those matters God's way. God's people must disciple families, business people, churches, and civil governments to handle their God-given assignments in their everyday world in God's way. While I did not come away from the colloquy with all the answers to a Christian position on social and political issues, I did come away with a deeper insight and a better set of questions to help formulate answers. Steve Clark's presentation concerning interpreting Scripture had the most impact on my own calling. He identified three common methods of interpreting the Bible that have been used by theologians in recent years. One, the traditional or theological method, which puts the weight on authority and truth. Two, the secular historical approach, in particular the historical critical method, which focuses more on assessing the historical validity of documents than it does on truth. And three, 
the historical biblical approach, which uses the tools of historical research while affirming the canonicity and authority of scriptures. Steve elucidated a number of ways in which the historical critical method has been used by theologians to undercut the plain teaching of scripture and the consistent understanding of the church through the centuries in matters of morality and doctrine. This methodology starts with the assumption that the biblical writings are relative to their own historical setting rather than that they are true or false. The interpreter approaches the scripture critically, undecided as to their validity and truth. Therefore, the technical skills and the reasoning of each theologian in effect has more authority than either the scripture itself or the historical teaching of the church. While interpreters may sometimes misuse the other methods of exegesis, it is vital that we who study the Bible approach our study trusting that the scriptures are true and authoritative. We must not strip scripture of its power and wisdom, but rather we must stand under scripture's authority because the writers of scripture were inspired by God's own spirit. The prepared responses by J.I. Packer and Michael Wren confirmed the core ideas in Steve's paper. J.I. Packer went beyond mere confirmation to declare convincingly, I thought, that in order to interpret scripture properly, it is necessary to use both the traditional theological method and the historical biblical method, holding them together, not as separate methodologies. Since I was not at all on the level of most of the participants in that seminary, seminar in terms of academic training, intellectual ability, leadership experience. Up to that time, I'd listened to discussions as an interested lear learner. However, upon hearing several responses from colloquy participants that defended a secularist approach to interpreting scripture, I could no longer sit silent. I went to the microphone. I told the other participants how I'd become partially secularized, secularized in my own thinking because of the way I had responded to my psychology class in Bible college and to the general cultural rebellion in the 60s. I told them that it had been my life in Christian community, a community consisting mostly of Roman Catholics, that had been playing a most significant part in reestablishing my life on the solid grounds of the Bible and the historical Christian faith. Mine was not an intellectual appeal. It was the cry of my heart that God's people not be led astray. Very possibly it came off as silly to many in that room full of scholars. No matter, I could not be silent. Mark Kinzer had arranged for me to stay in the Brotherhood house in which he lived during, the, during that colloquy because we were going to leave together for Australia after its conclusion. Thus, after the first session, I found myself in the back seat of a car sitting between the well-known evangelical Anglican pastor and author J.I. Packer and Harry S. Plamiers, an Anglican theologian, literary critic, and novelist who had been mentored by C.S. Lewis. I freely admit that on that ride, they talked over my head, both literally and figuratively. That colloquy led to the formation of the Alliance for Faith and Renewal and to several Allies for Faith and Renewal conferences. Although I would not be able to participate in the next two because of the conflicts that were soon to divide our association of communities, I was privileged to attend several more in the late 1980s, including one during which Charles Colson read the manuscript for his insightful and challenging book, Against the Night, Living in the New Dark Ages. He read that paper before the book was published. 
These gatherings had significant long-term impact on me. I was only a bit player, but it was a privilege to be involved. My conviction that God wanted some sort of unity among the churches was greatly strengthened. At first, the unity of God's people seemed important to me mostly because Jesus prayed for that unity and because Scripture teaches that He's preparing a bride without spot and wrinkle. However, because of the time in Steubenville and the colloquy, I came to see far more clearly that God's people will need to be unified if we are to be successful in dealing with the challenges to biblical faith at this time in history. The Alliance for Faith and Renewal conferences provided a forum for relationships to be established between leaders from a broad spectrum of Christian churches. Whether directly or indirectly, the Alliance was a forerunner of evangelicals and Catholics together. The 1994 document that subsequently was put out by a group initiated by Baptist Charles Colson and Roman Catholic Richard John Newhouse. Certainly our little group of brainstormers sitting on the lawn of a monastery in August 1980 are not responsible for all that has happened to foster the development of unity among Christians in the years that followed. Even so, some of those in that group played a significant role and the ideas we shared with one another played some part. It was the God-given desire for unity that took me to Brisbane, Australia with my friend Mark. At 5.30 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time on Saturday, October 10th, Patricia's birthday, we took off from Detroit Metro Airport on the first leg of our journey to Australia. We arrived in Los Angeles International at 5 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, a fact that has stuck in my mind because we arrived, quote, before, unquote, we started. Our 6.30 p.m. flight with TWA from L.A. to Honolulu had been canceled, so we were re rebooked to take a Pan American flight scheduled to leave about 9 p.m. During that lengthy wait at the Pan Am gate, Mark decided to use part of the time to pray. To, be, to my surprise, and truthfully to my discomfort, he put a skull cap on his head and took out his Jewish prayer book and turned away to face a support pillar. Right there in the midst of the crowded room, Mark stood bobbing back and forth, his lips quietly pronouncing the words, praying just like the Jewish men do at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. Mark's courage stunned and challenged me. I had to choose whether to stand close by, where it was obvious that I was with him, or to move away so as not to be identified with him. I chose to say to stay, but I am chagrined to say that I was still somewhat embarrassed. As we got on the plane in L.A., I heard people around us saying things like, Uh-oh, the Australian football team. Things will be lively on this flight. I soon learned that those who play Australian football have the same sort of reputation for rowdiness as do those who play rugby, a similar game. The team was seated a couple sections behind us on the Boeing 747, so we did not see much of them on the flight to Honolulu, where we landed about 11 p.m. Hawaii time that Saturday night. Meanwhile, it was 4 a.m. back in Detroit. What was supposed to have been a short 45-minute stop turned into more than a two-hour delay when a mechanical problem was discovered on our Boeing 747, and we had to wait for a different jet to be brought up so that we could finish our flight. We all had to disembark and wait in the terminal. There I saw for myself that the footballers were indeed rowdy, those Full-grown men ran all around that area of the terminal, 
jumping chairs, tossing various and sundry items back and forth, and basically being noisy nuisances. We left Honolulu at 1 a.m. on Sunday and nine hours later arrived in Sydney at 7 a.m. on Monday morning, having skipped the day when we crossed the international dateline. Overall coordinator Brian Smith and an Anglican coordinator from Emanuel Community in Brisbane met us just outside the customs inspection room in the Sydney terminal and then flew with us on the two and a half hour flight into Brisbane. Because Brisbane is about the same distance south of the equator as Tampa, Florida is north of the equator, we left the fall colors of upper Midwest and arrived to see the lilac blue blossoms of the Australian jacarandas in springtime. I was struck by the many high-set homes, houses built several feet above the ground, often with latticework around the base, built that way because it was supposedly cooler to have air under the house in summer. The fronts of downtown town shops and pubs were quite often open to the street and expandable gates were used to lock them up at night. During our flight over, Mark had told me about the division in the Emmanuel community between the elders and Pentecostals, which they used synonymously in Emmanuel for what we called non-denominationals back home. Over an excellent lunch of fresh barramundi, the Australian brothers told us more about the problems in their community. They had had a gifted Pentecostal coordinator in the community until a few months before when he and a number of Pentecostals had left Emmanuel to start their own church. Because they left without fully processing the decision with the leadership, it had left a wound in the community. A number of the Pentecostals who had chosen to stay still had some distrust toward the leadership as well as hurt toward those who were gone. They had had a gifted Pentecostal coordinator in the community until a few months before. Excuse me, I'd had to pause again and I started the wrong paragraph. That gifted coordinator, as I read before, had, with some other Pentecostals, had left the community and started their own church, leaving those behind who were confused and had some distrust toward the community leadership as well as hurt toward those who had gone. According to Brian, there were no strong leaders among the Pentecostals who had stayed, certainly no one with a strong biblical theological foundation. Therefore, when a theological problem surfaced, there was no one grounded enough or secure enough to deal with it reasonably. Instead, emotions had run rampant and communication between most of the Pentecostals and the community leaders had broken down. Mark and I had been sent to try to help bridge the communication gap and bring peace to their relationships. On the one hand, I wanted to laugh at the theological problem once I heard it. On the other hand, how could I laugh when there was a serious breach in relationships among brothers? I was in Australia, by far the longest trip of my life, because of a comic book. Can you believe it? In 1979, track publisher Jack Chick of Chick Publications had produced a comic book telling the story of Alberto, supposedly a former Jesuit priest who had been converted and left the Roman Catholic Church. According to Alberto, the Jesuits actually control the Catholic Church, and the head of the Jesuits is a high priest of Satan. Furthermore, according to the comic book, Alberto had revealed that the Jesuits had a huge computer in Rome onto which they were collecting personal information about all Protestants. At a future time, 
when the Roman Catholic Church had set up its one-world superchurch, the Jesuits would then identify these Protestants and kill those who refused to convert. In the meantime, before his conversion, Father Alberto was purported to have been one of the many Jesuits assigned to infiltrate Bible-believing churches and seminaries in order to disrupt them and to corrupt and destroy the leaders. The comics specifically identified the charismatic movement and the ecumenical movement as two of the tools to be used by the Jesuits in creating this future super church. Still today, as of the writing of this book, Chick Publications is propagating Alberto's story through the internet, where they now offer six comic books featuring him. Never mind that he has long since been exposed as a fraud by a number of reputable sources, including Christianity Today, March 13, 1981, and the Christian Research Institute, February 25, 1983. However, in the fall of 1980, we had no sources like these to which we could refer. It probably seems ludicrous that people would take a comic book so seriously. However, as one who grew up in a church context in which Roman Catholicism was considered a cult and the Pope had often been touted as the coming Antichrist, I had learned by experience that these sorts of charges could seem quite believable to sincere believers who had been steeped in some forms of premillennial dispensationalism. Many of the Protestants who had joined the ecumenical communities did not have solid theological and biblical grounding. Since they were not solidly grounded in their own beliefs, they could easily become insecure when exposed to the differing beliefs of other Christians, and they were certainly ill-equipped to deal with accusations of conspiratorial plots especially those that played on fears that were already planted by end-time sermons. Even the fact that they had become friends with Roman Catholics whom they believed to be genuine believers did not mean that they trusted the Roman Catholic Church. The comic book stirred up unrest as it was circulated among these Pentecostals in Emmanuel. Perhaps it was because they did not want to hurt their Catholic friends that they did not ask Emmanuel coordinators about the truth in the book. Who knows? It might not have become a big deal except the coordinators made the simple decision to buy a computer for the community office. So what, we would ask today. However, in 1980, personal computer, computers or small business computers were in their infancy, infancy. Not all that many businesses even had computers, let alone churches or individuals. When word got around that the community office was beginning to keep records in a computer, Alberto's accusation about the Jesuits collecting lists of Protestants seemed more than credible to a number of the community's Pentecostals. By the time the coordinators learned about the comic book, fear had already taken root, underlying distrust had been acerbated, and communication had become next to impossible. Mark and I were there as Protestants to try to help reopen communication and to see if we could help establish an environment in which trust could grow. We didn't get into the theological issue very deeply, rather we focused on reconciling the relationships. To tell the truth, Mark was the one who had the training experience to be able to develop a plan for reconciliation. I was along to be with Mark. He had been a member of the Word of God longer than I had been in the body of Christ and the servants of the Lord, and he had been a coordinator longer than I had as well. It had been primarily Mark to whom I had looked for practical wisdom and guidance in my efforts to establish the Free Church Fellowship. 
In addition, Mark had lived in the Word of God Brotherhood with Steve Clark, one of the founders of the whole ecumenical covenant movement, and had been trained by him. I was there to support Mark and to learn from him. I do think that I was able to contribute some to our mission. For one thing, it was probably easier for me to relate to the simplicity of the Pentecostals than it was for Mark, who had grown up in a Jewish home in Detroit. These folks were, for the most part, working people, not too unlike those with whom I had grown up in the Churches of Christ and Christian Union. Because of this similarity in background, I may have helped us build a bridge of trust with them. It turned out that in the public meetings, I was able to quickly establish a rapport with people. Every time I spoke before a new group, I was able to say only a few words before the people would break out into laughter. I can only think that it was because of my accent, although Mark's Michigan accent seemed funnier to me. I've also wondered if they may have associated my accent with someone on television. The truth is, I never figured out why they laughed, but it was obviously friendly laughter, and it established some sort of connection that gave me confidence and seemed to make them receptive. After a couple instances of this response, I began to play to it, deliberately trying to sound a bit countrified. At the main community meeting, I opened with a joke about a hill hillbilly preacher who consistently exaggerated while preaching. It went over so well that I still try the joke from time to time, but not with the same results. Mark's wisdom was greater, but having a comedian along, comedians in quotations, seemed to open people's hearts to us. By the time we left to come home, there had been significant reconciliation. Mark helped the Pentecostals and coordinators draw up a written agreement to help reestablish their relationship and to set forth agreed-upon steps to take when their trust was tested in the future. Not only did they sign the agreement, but they also presented it to the whole body of more than 1,000 members at their community gathering. There was great rejoicing. I came home from this apparent victory for unity only to become embroiled in a much larger conflict that was to come to light just a few months later. And so I conclude chapter 16 with another cliffhanger concerning division. I'll pick up there in the next episode. In the meantime, may God bless you with the knowledge of his presence and love in whatever circumstances you may find yourself in your own journey.